So we are in our final week of our series, Take the Lead. It has been a four-part series on leadership, and we've been looking at different figures in the Bible and examining different angles and aspects of leadership uh, from those stories and people in the Bible, like Nehemiah. And then we looked at King David and Moses last week, um, and today we're ending the series. I thought a great way to end the series would be talking about Jesus's leadership. Jesus is absolutely known as the greatest leader of all time. I love looking at Jesus and what he accomplished in his lifetime and so much of what we're a part of today still. Forbes magazine in 2014 said this, you don't have to be a Christian to learn leadership lessons from Jesus. Despite being executed as a criminal, Jesus managed to start a faith that now has more than 2 billion followers and has lasted almost 2,000 years. Clearly, Jesus is the greatest leader in human history. I love that. That doesn't come from a Christian magazine. That comes from Forbes magazine in 2014. What we learn from Jesus and looking at his life, so many things. One of the things we learn is that leadership is not a rank. Leadership is not a place on an org chart. Leadership has nothing to do with your place on an org chart. It has everything to do with our influence in people's lives. And we don't gain influence by having a position of authority. We gain influence no matter where we are on an org chart. We gain influence by caring for people, investing for the, in those around us, and in turn receiving influence in their lives. I firmly believe that some of the greatest leaders in our nation are at the bottom of org charts right now, simply looking at the circle around them as a place and people to influence, care for, invest in, and they won't be there very long. I also believe that some of the worst leaders in the nation are towards the top of org charts because they pride themselves in position, authority, and power. And if they left work, no one would follow them. People follow leaders who have earned influence, not through force, but through trust, care, and investment. And that's who Jesus was. Jesus was born into a family with no power, no authority, and no natural influence. Jesus was born in an area of the world that, that was poor, just in the little area around the Galilee. And he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. And his entire life growing up in this little simple area with nothing profound, but somehow, somehow in his life, being the greatest leader to ever live, we still are here and gathering 2,000 years later because of his leadership. Jesus is amazing. And we think about his life, again, there's so many things I could have talked about in regards to his leadership, but today I'm gonna talk about looking at one specific story. It's a shorter part of his leadership journey, his life, it's right as he is about to be arrested, and he finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what I'm going to talk about today for a few minutes is leadership under pressure, the pressure that centers around leadership. 
But in order for us to fully understand this story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying about to be arrested, we have to go back in time and understand the backstory and the context to fully appreciate what's happening in this story in Matthew 26 in the Garden. What I love about the Bible is this. If you read it at face value, it's awesome. But if you get to a place of going one layer deeper than face value, the Bible comes to life at a, at a level we could po not possibly understand. I love it because things start connecting from the Old Testament, the New Testament, prophecies to things that are fulfilled. It's amazing. And that's what I want to show you just for the couple minutes leading into this story. You go all the way back and understanding, first of all, that Jesus was called in his lifetime Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because that's the town he grew up in. It was a nothing town. I've been there. It's still a nothing town. It was an amazing play or amazing, uh, it's amazing feat to come from a place like that. But that's how he's known, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, when you think about that name, Jesus of Nazareth, you look at the root word of that word, Nazareth, that town, it comes from a Hebrew word called Netzer. This Hebrew word netzer literally means in the Hebrew language, a new shoot or new branch specifically growing off of an olive tree, a new branch growing off of an olive tree. Jesus was known in his lifetime as Jesus of Nazareth. Follow with me on this. Isaiah 11, one through two happened 700 years before the birth of Christ, and it's a messianic prophecy about Jesus, and it says this. The royal line of David will be cut off, chopped down like a tree, but from the stump will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch from the old root, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jesus is from the line of King David. Also in the New Testament, he's known as the son of David, born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And out of the stump of Jesse, who is David's father, would come a new branch one day, a new shoot one day to do things in a new way and bring a new revelation to people. But continuing on this, we gotta remember in verse two again of that, of that passage, it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Let's jump to Matthew 3.16 in the New Testament. This is Jesus' baptism, and I want us to focus on the wording. Jesus' baptism is also known as the anointing of Jesus because of everything that happens in this moment. It says this, when Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was open to him, and what did he see? He saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove, and what? Resting on him. Jesus, in this moment, what people are seeing, whether they realize it or not, is the beginning of, a, of the fulfillment of the prophecy going back to Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. We understand that when Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit in this moment, he was also anointed by the Holy Spirit as well. In Luke chapter 4, stick with me on this, Luke chapter 4, Jesus of Nazareth is back in Nazareth. And he's teaching in the synagogue in the town he grew up in. And this is what it says. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus of Nazareth 
the new shoot, the new branch is saying that I am the fulfillment of all of the prophecies. I am the new shoot that comes from the line of David. I am the one that the Holy Spirit has come to rest upon. But even the wording rest upon that we see in the, all of these scriptures, what it means is to completely engulf. It doesn't mean just sit on. It means to become him, to engulf him inside and out. And Jesus is saying, I am the anointed one. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. And I am the embodiment of the Spirit. And I am the new way. It's amazing. But then we also, that gives us the context, though, for the Garden of Gethsemane. Toward the end of Jesus' life, right before he's arrested, right before Judas would come and give him the kiss of betrayal, Jesus and his disciples after the Last Supper, the Bible tells us in Matthew 26, 36, it says this, when Jesus went with his disciples, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a very specific word that has a very specific meaning, and it's also a Hebrew word, and it's this, gat shimanim, and it means oil press, oil press. Gethsemane literally means the oil press. And now that I told you all this stuff, I'm gonna connect the dots, bear with me. It means this, Jesus is the shoot that came from the house of Jesse, King David. He also is the new way of thinking and doing. The Holy Spirit at the baptism came and rested upon him. In Luke chapter four, he confirmed that the Holy Spirit was in him. He is the embodiment of the Holy Spirit and then now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes into the place of pressing. We also know in Scripture that the Holy Spirit, the symbol for the Holy Spirit with the anointing is what? Oil. What kind of oil? Olive oil. When Jesus goes into the press, the olive pressing, he is going in as a metaphor as well, as the olive that will be pressed, the fruit of the vine of the branch that will be pressed in this season in the garden of Gethsemane. He's praying so intently about what's to come. He begins to sweat beads of blood. And what it's, how it's happening is it's a symbol of Jesus being squeezed and the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit that had rested upon him is now being released to the world. And he's pointing to the day of Pentecost, 50 days after he comes out of the grave, when we would receive the anointing oil that was pressed out of him in the garden of Gethsemane, where there was one shoot being Jesus. Now there are millions of new branches and new shoots. We are them, and now we can bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit because Jesus was pressed in the garden. I love looking how the Bible connects all of these dots. But when he's in the garden, he is being pressed. The oil is flowing, metaphorically. He's being pressed for us. And so for the next few minutes, this is what I wanna talk about from the leadership angle I want us to look at Jesus and what he did in the garden, how he handled himself in Gethsemane in this season, in this time, this night. What does it look like to lead under pressure? And how do we become unbreakable leaders? How can we bend but not break when the pressure is mounting in life? I want, if you're taking notes, number one is this. Unbreakable leaders maintain focus on the main objective. Unbreakable leaders maintain focus on the main objective. Matthew 26, 38 through 39, 
as he's walking into Gethsemane, it says, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me, talking to his disciples. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In a few minutes, I'm gonna talk about the vulnerability that Jesus displayed in this moment. But the cup is the cup of responsibility of what's to come with the cross, the weight of carrying the sin of the world, the sin of every person that would ever live because Jesus is going to the cross as the sacrificial lamb, bearing our sin. It is mounting on him. And in a moment of vulnerability, he looks up to God the Father and says, I understand the cup. I understand the responsibility, but if there's any other way to accomplish this, can we do that? He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Why was Jesus able to say this and put his will in check? Remember, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He had to be. But the humanity part of Jesus is on full display. But how was he able to put his will into check and stay on course toward the main objective? You want to know why? Because you were the main objective. You were his why. He was willing to say, I will bear the pain and the price because your face was on his mind. That's why movies like The Passion of the Christ, and anytime I get to see something, the visual way of that moment and what Jesus went through, it's so emotional for me because I understand he didn't have the masses of humanity in his mind. He had me in his mind. He had you in his mind. You were his why. And from a leadership standpoint, the way we get through the times of Gethsemane, the times of pressing and pressure, the pressures of life, the pressures of parenting, because parenting is leadership, the pressures of leadership on our teams and in our workplaces or just living life in general, how we get through it is we remember our why. It's the why that keeps me going. I mentioned last week that I've been pastoring now 18 years. Actually, this Sunday, today, is the four-year anniversary of us being the pastors of the church today. Isn't that weird? It's like it crept up on us. But four years senior pastoring, but 18 years in full-time ministry. And let me tell you something. The pressures of ministry are real, they are great, and they are heavy. I know it's not unique to my occupation. We just live in a time that is full of pressure. But there have been times, there have been times, where I've gone to Mandy, and I've gone to God, and I've said, is there any other way? Is there any other thing we can do? I don't know. I don't know. But then immediately, I remember my why. I remember when God called me. I remember what it feels like to stand on the stage and not just look at your faces, but also think about all of the kids in kids' ministry. I think about understanding that this is worth fighting for, to go through the pressure, because Gethsemane was never meant to be a place of residency. It was meant to be a place of transition to the next step. But far too many people make the time of pressing a place of residency and they never get beyond the garden to the point of their life because their identity has become pain, rejection, and failure rather than pressing through and remembering their why. What is your why? We talked in week one, we'll never know our why until we're connected with God and he gives us the vision 
for our lives. Number two is this, unbreakable leaders don't confuse aloneness with loneliness. Unbreakable leaders don't confuse aloneness with loneliness. What do I mean? Matthew 26, 36 through 38, and then verse 40 says this, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, I want you to think about, this is Jesus, I mean, opening up his heart to these three men. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. In verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter. Can you imagine what Jesus was thinking? You can, because we've all been there. We've all been at a place where we were there for people over and over and over again. But when you needed them most, they weren't there for you. One of the things I love about Christianity and the Savior we serve is there is nothing that we can go through in life that he hasn't been through first. He can identify with our rejection and our pain. What Jesus was thinking when he looks at Peter, James, and John, he's looking at them thinking, you were my inner circle. I took you everywhere with me. I left the other disciples and took you up the Mount of Transfiguration. You saw me transfigure in all of my glory before the Old Testament prophets, before God, before the Holy Spirit. You saw me in a way no one else has ever seen me. I took you there. He's thinking, I took you into the house of Jairus and you watched a dead girl come back to life. After I reached into death and pulled her out, you saw that. And I asked you today to come with me into the garden, off of the mountaintop experiences, and come with me into my valley. And you fell asleep. Jesus was working through the difference between aloneness and loneliness. But this was also a time as he was rejected in this moment by friends, he was also connected with God the Father in a way that sustained him and kept him moving because there's a massive difference between being alone and being lonely. Alone is a physical state where you're literally by yourself. Lonely is an emotional state where you're feeling alone or disconnected, whether you're actually alone or even with a group of people. But what happens oftentimes is we make these words synonymous and we walk around with an identity of lonely when we might just be alone for a reason but we live in a time, a culture, and a society that is not okay with being alone. We're not okay with being alone. We're not okay with being silent. We, we, we absolutely believe that true connection, or the only kind of connection that can bring fulfillment is from other people, and when we're rejected by other people, when we're not around other people, when I don't get married early enough, when I'm broken up with, although those things can be painful, we think that is the ultimate connection, but could it be that you're not actually lonely, but you might just be alone because God's trying to get connected with you so, he can under, so you can understand what he's wanting and so you can move through the Gethsemane and get to the place where he wants you to go. How many times have you been alone and you just jump to call a friend when God might be saying, connect with me, connect with me? I think one of the greatest things we can learn as believers is to be okay with being alone and connecting with God 
and letting him truly fulfill us in our deepest times of need and brokenness in our lives, in the Gethsemane moments of pressing and pressure in our lives, we need to learn to get alone. Number three is this. Unbreakable leaders don't create unnecessary conflict. Unbreakable leaders don't create unnecessary conflict. Let me just say this. The worst time you could ever create conflict is when you are under pressure. That's the, that's the worst time, but it just so happens, because we're human, that tends to be the time we create it the most. And Jesus is showing us in this story, especially in a time of pressing in a Gethsemane moment or season, don't create unnecessary conflict or unnecessary enemies. John 18, 10 through 11, right after Jesus is approached by the guards and, and given the kiss, the betrayal, kiss of betrayal by Judas, Peter does something that many of us are familiar with. It says this, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword away. It's not logical from a human standpoint to put your sword away. Jesus is saying, they're coming to get you unjustly. They're coming to arrest you, and I have a sword, and I'm gonna do something about it. Jesus, my anger and action is justified. Have you ever felt like your anger and the action because of your anger were justified? But have we ever stopped to listen and maybe Jesus was looking at us saying, I know it feels justified and I know you're calling that person or that thing evil, but put your sword away. Put your sword away. I love also Luke's vantage point on this. He says this, but Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. I mean, this is astonishing. And this, this one little story could be a sermon series, truly. But what's astonishing about this is Jesus did not have the time to stop down and teach Peter, Peter a lesson and heal a guy. He is being bound, beaten already, and he's already being dragged out of the Garden of Gethsemane, and he stops, and he's, trying to, he's figuring out the time to heal a man's ear, to get on to Peter. Peter's like, why are you getting on to me? You've got a lot going on. You're like being dragged away. But Jesus gets onto him, he heals the man's ear because he wanted to stop and make a point. What's the point? It's this. We do not ever have permission to make enemies of those who have made us their enemy. Every commentator, every theologian throughout history, how you accurately translate this and apply it is that statement. We are never given permission by Jesus to make enemies of those who have made us their enemy. Well, what about if they're evil? and they have an evil agenda. I think those guards had a pretty evil agenda. And Jesus said, put away your sword. What I love is Jesus was not soft. He was not telling Peter, put away your masculinity. He was not telling Peter, you know, put away your feelings. He was saying, put away sword. Put away the action that overflows from your anger. So often in moments of anger, we'll lash out on social media. We'll lash out at a family member because I'm being pressured in my life. Maybe you're going through a season of divorce or pain or loss, job loss, financial trouble. You're going through a big transition and all you're feeling is pressure. You are going to see people and situations through the lens of your pressure circumstance. And what Jesus is saying is the worst time ever for you to make enemies is when you're under pressure. 
Don't create unnecessary conflict. Number four is this, unbreakable leaders see the value of authenticity. Unbreakable leaders see the value of authenticity. Matthew 26, 39, again says this, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. This is Jesus. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I think it's, I mean, I don't know. I feel like one of the greatest tactics of the enemy is convincing the masses who are not Christians yet that in order to be a Christian, you have to be fake, you can't be authentic, you can't be vulnerable, you've gotta put on a mask, you've gotta be what everybody expects you to be. And I think that's astonishing because what's taught in scripture is literally the complete opposite. The complete opposite. Modeled especially by Jesus in this moment. Again, it's one of the reasons I love Christianity so much. We follow a savior, the son of God, who has felt everything we have felt and is modeling what we should be living. And what Jesus is saying in the garden is this. I can be authentic and vulnerable to God. I can stop down and say, God, I know I've got a big plan for my life. I would say so. There's something big on the horizon, but God, I'm under pressure. And in my humanity, I'm looking for another way. I don't understand, God, this is a lot to bear. I need you. And he's being open and vulnerable, saying, is there any other way? And somehow, people have been convinced by the masses that in order to be a Christian, you can't be real and authentic. You can't be yourself. They're gonna expect you to be some other. And I guess a lot of churches and some people have done that in Christianity. And I am sorry on their behalf, but it's not Christianity. It's not what Jesus modeled. What I love is that in my prayer time, in your prayer time, you can go to God the Father and drop to your knees and say, God, I'm not understanding this pressure season. I'm not understanding what I'm going through. God, you promised me this. Why is the Gethsemane season going so long? Why am I under so much pressure? Are you still there? Do you still love me? And I promise you when we are just that authentic and real before God, our relationship is strengthening. It is becoming more solidified than ever, and we can receive communication in a clearer way from God. But we have to understand, we have to be authentic. And the truth is, this entire culture, our society right now, craves authenticity. Would you guys agree? We crave authenticity. How many people just love a good meal? It's probably a bad time to ask this question. <laughs> love a good meal. I, I, am a, I am a foodie. That's my vice. I mean, we, I mean we're, we just eat. Like, that's all we do. I mean, we eat. But every time before I go to a new restaurant, I don't believe anything on the restaurant's website. I don't believe their photos. I don't believe any of it. I have to go to Yelp. I've gotta see their photos. Real people taking photos of that chicken sandwich that looks nothing like the chicken sandwich on their online menu. I've gotta know what people are saying about the restaurant, not what the restaurant is saying about itself. Why? Because we want the authentic, real view not some distorted reality. We want authenticity. And what's amazing is Harvard Business Review did a poll, an American poll of young adults in our country, and this is what it came out as saying. 75%, especially of young adult employees, want to experience more authenticity at work. And when you keep reading through that, I didn't put them on the screen, when you keep reading through this article, what it says is the Gen X, 
older millennial, Gen X, and even baby boomer generations roll their eyes at the 75% of young adults that are saying we want more authenticity at work. And they're, they're saying this is one of the biggest reasons why there is a growing chasm between the generations and a growing frustration in the workplace between owners, managers, and, and new employees that are stepping in in those roles. But there is a demand for authenticity, and I think it's a good demand. I think we need more authenticity in the workplace, in church, and in organizations. How do you become an authentic leader? I just have a list of bullet points. They're gonna come up on the screen. They won't. On this, this screen, it's okay. In the first service, I saw it flashing a little while ago in this one, a little bit. In the first service, it was like, we got some wiring issues. We'll figure it out. I want you to look at these. How do we become an authentic leader? We have to listen to people. Admit your mistakes. It's huge. These sound simple, but actually think how they play out in the workplace. Show emotion, compassion, your human side. Apologize when it's called for. Do the right thing. Let people know you care for them as individuals, not just employees and what they can do for you. Acknowledge the wins and successes of others. Even the people who are the same place as you on an org chart who you would view as competition, acknowledge their successes. Appreciate everyone as a valuable member of the team and be approachable. And the only way we can truly grow at the level we need to grow in with all of these things is not us looking at, our, at that and evaluating ourselves, but it's giving a few people permission to help us in the evaluation process. And it goes back to what I said last week. We have to be open to input from people, and that's how we grow. Number five is this, unbreakable leaders embrace the pressure for the sake of the promise. Unbreakable leaders embrace the pressure for the sake of the promise. What is the promise? What is the promise? What is the pressure? You think about pressure with this topic today. Um, it's kind of like this, there's a running joke in pastor church world that whatever, you gotta be careful what you're preaching on that coming Sunday because you deal with it that week kind of thing. And so pe people come up to us all the time, you guys should do a, you guys should do a marriage series, man. You're like, ah, you know, you know but with, with pressure, <laughs> no, we're doing good. You know, I, but with pressure, this has been a pressure week for me and I, and I bet for you as well. But there's a promise on the other side of pressure. Did you know that whether it's spiritual, physical, things we're going through in our lives, the reason for the anointing of the Holy Spirit was this, through the pressure of Gethsemane, power was produced from that anointing, the, the metaphorical oil coming out of Jesus that day in the Garden of Gethsemane. But there's a promise, and here it is. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul writes this, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but not crushed or broken. We are perplexed because we don't know why things happen as they do but we don't give up and quit. We are, we are hunted down, but God never abandons us. We get knocked down, but we get, we get up again and keep going. I love this scripture because this is the promise from God. We're not gonna be broken. We're pressed, but we're not broken. It's a promise. And honestly, when I was reading that, I'm thinking, how can God promise us something like this? 
The promise is this, that Gethsemane does not have to be your destination. It does not have to be your place of residency. What you're going through right now does not have to be something that always is happening. There is another side to what you're going through, but we have to endure the pressure for the sake of the promise. And if we want to be an unbreakable leader, we have to lean into the God who conquered brokenness on our behalf. The irony of the title, The Unbreakable Leader, is that Jesus was broken. But it wasn't because he was subject to someone else's will. He was broken because of his own will and his own decision. He was broken on purpose for our behalf. He went to the cross where his body was broken, his blood was spilled, so that the Apostle Paul could write in 2 Corinthians 4, we're gonna be pressed, but not broken. We're gonna be perplexed, but we're not gonna be confused. We're not gonna be broken. Jesus said this exact thing when he met with his disciples at the Last Supper. And the Apostle Paul also wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he's teaching the Corinthian church what it means to take communion. And we're gonna take communion together in a few minutes as a congregation. But he said this, he, Jesus, thanked God for the bread. And then he what? He broke it into pieces. He said, this is my body that I give to, give to save you. Eat this bread so that you remember me. After they had eaten supper, Jesus took a cup of wine. He spoke to his disciples again. He said, this cup shows my blood that will pour out when I die. God now makes a new agreement to save people because of my death. Whenever you drink from the cup, whenever you drink from the cup in this way, do it to remember me. Every time that you eat bread and you drink from the cup like this, you are showing something. You are showing people what the Lord's death means. You should continue to do this until he returns. Jesus was saying as he broke the bread, they didn't have a clue yet because this was before the arrest, before the crucifixion, but he was showing them he would be broken. But when we call on his name and remember him, and when he is in us and we're in him, we can never be broken. The things in this life will press us. We might use the terminology, I'm broken, but you're here. You still have purpose. You still have destiny. You're pressed, but you're not broken. As you hold these elements today, if you go ahead and stand with me. In a moment, we're gonna sing a final song and in a moment, I'll pray over the elements. But as you hold the elements in your hand, I want you to know something. I want you to know the bread is here, the cup is here. I want you to know that God wants to do something new in your life, something new. Because Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that we can become a new creation in him if we just call on his name. But not just a new creation, he wants to do something new in your life, but new comes on the other side of pressing. You can't have new and keep the old. And Jesus said that in Luke 5, he says this, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new fermenting wine will expand and burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new, fresh, wineskins. 
but the process from going from old to new seems to always be Gethsemane. The place of pressing was not meant to break you. It can't. It can't destroy you. But our calling is to endure it, embrace it, and understand that as we are pressed, if we lean into God, the anointing flows. And true power from God can flow out of the pressing, out of the pressing. We're gonna sing a final song called New Wine, and I just thought it was a, would be a great way to end our series, going into our rally services this week, taking communion, and remembering what Jesus did on the cross. I'm gonna pray over the elements in a moment, and then during this next song, um, whenever you choose, in that moment of connection with God, you can take both of the elements on your own during this next song. But today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would also like to invite anyone today that's wanting to go from an old creation to a new creation, to receive Christ as our Savior, walking into a brand new life with Him. If today's your day, and you want the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers, an eternal home in heaven forever, but also meaning and a true sense of home even now, I just read to you what Jesus did on the cross as our perfect sacrifice. He wants to take away your sin and give you his perfection, to give you his eternal covering. If that's you today, when I count to three, I would love to just include you in this final prayer. On the count of three, if you would just lift your hand right where you are, if that's you. One, two, three. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can put them right back down. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray over two things. I'm going to pray over the group of people that just raised their hands, and I want you to make this prayer your own. You can't just listen to my prayer. This has to be a declaration from your heart, but I'm also going to pray over both of the elements today. Then we'll go into this final song and take communion together. Father, we thank you so much. You see every hand that was raised, and right now, Jesus, as we're talking about you today and what you did for us, even going to the garden and what you would do for us on the cross, we recognize that today. Because your body was broken and your blood was spilled, we have the forgiveness of sins, physical and spiritual healing. And today, we remember what you did. And for those of us that raised our hands today, Jesus, you see our hearts and we give our hearts and lives to you. We receive you as our Lord and our Savior. We repent of our sin. And today, Jesus, through you, I can stand a brand new creation before you. My sin is forgiven. The old is gone. The new has come. I turn from my sin and I stand in your grace because of what you did on the cross for me. I pray over the elements today. Bless them, Jesus, as we sing for these few minutes and remember you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.